I don't sleep with my sister. <laughs> that was the reason why he seemed willing to kind of turn over and flip on his sister to the government. So she was betrayed by those two family of origin members. On this episode of The Creators Community, we'll meet Alisa Parenti, a lifelong journalist and anchor with Bloomberg News Radio, and now a published author. Alisa shares the journey of writing a historical fiction novel on one of my favorite topics, spies. We'll learn what inspired Alisa to write a book about Ethel Rosenberg. Ethel was the first woman executed by the US government for espionage. Alisa also shares intimate details of how Ethel wasn't just abandoned by friends and family as the U.S. government came after her. She was betrayed. Check out the show. Welcome to the first season of The Creator Community. This is a brand new podcast series from book publisher New Degree Press. I'm your host, John Saunders, founder of Forward Advisory Solutions. The show is designed to celebrate, elevate, and showcase many of the incredible authors that have published their books with NDP. This year, NDP will cross over 1,000 published authors. In this show, we will get to know the authors and their books, as well as give you a behind the scenes look at their journey. We'll find out what it takes to bring a book from idea to being available to wherever you buy books online. It's no easy task. Today I have with me, Elisa Parenti, author of Betrayal, The Ethel Rosenberg Story. Elisa is an award-winning journalist, reporter, anchor, and storyteller with more than 30 years of experience. She has served as an adjunct faculty member at Georgetown University teaching multimedia journalism and news writing. She earned a master's degree from Northwestern University's Medal School of Journalism. She is married and has raised two daughters while navigating an extraordinary career in journalism. Elise's book just published a few weeks ago and is available wherever you buy books online. Elisa, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, John, and thank you to New Degree Press for this podcast and for all of the ways that the publisher supports its authors. Really grateful to be a part of it. I appreciate that. It's been such a fun journey, and it's been really fun to get a chance to watch watch you go through it. Uh, you know, before we get into the book, I'd love to share with our listeners a little bit, Elisa, about your background and career. You know, where did your interest in writing and journalism come from? I, I I don't think we've had a lot of journalists come through the program just yet, so it's it's interesting to see you in, in the in, in the cohort. I began to be interested in journalism when I was in college. I had an internship with a local Chicago station, the CBS station Channel Two, and was shadowing a reporter on election night. And it turned out to be a big upset. And we happened to be at the winning candidates' headquarters that night. And there was so much energy and excitement in that room. And I thought, I can't believe they pay people to do this work. This is awesome. <laughs> so I always knew that I wanted to be a storyteller in one way or another. And then I was drawn to the idea of telling stories that are underreported, talking, giving voice to folks who are marginalized or don't have an opportunity to perhaps put their own story forward. So all of that kind of came together for me when I was in college. And I decided to get a master's degree in journalism and was fortunate enough to land a job. It's not an automatic in that field. And so you kind of have to be willing to go to smaller markets and work your way up if you're interested in broadcast journalism. 
And of course, as you mentioned, this is many decades ago. I, I don't know how things have changed since. Uh, now, these days with our smartphones, everyone's a reporter. But um, that's kind of the background of it. And I, it's been I, a real privilege to be able to tell stories. Um, but it kind of one led to the other in terms of the book piece, because the being a broadcast journalist, you only have about a minute or two minutes to tell a story. And I was really drawn to this idea of a long form. Oh my gosh, I could say whatever I want for as long as I want. <laughs> and no one's going to be in my ear saying, wrap it up, wrap it up now. Come on, straight up. So, uh, so that's kind of what led me to, to the book journey and to New Degree Press. I love that story. I could feel myself in the room with you on election night there and, and feeling all the energy. That's that's awesome. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, you know, let's talk. You you alluded a bit to the journey there, and, and you know how I'd love to share with our listeners a little bit of how you became an author. How do you get from idea to published book? And and I say more importantly, how do you find the time and fit it into your life? Because it's no easy task. It is really challenging, and I'm fortunate in that my children are adults now. They're uh, two two women who are 23 and 28. So having that piece, not being responsible for other living beings other than myself, is a big is a a, a big boon and a big help to becoming an author. Um, however, I think it's a matter of carving out the time and the discipline to pursue what you want to be pursuing and do being very intentional about your work. And so we, I'm sadly not independently wealthy. So I have to work for a living outside, you know, so I, I kind of have am tied in and locked down between nine and five most weekdays. So this was something that I dedicated myself to. I carved out the time to write uh, really kind of had long writing sessions on the weekends uh, would get up early at five, which seems crazy, but it was actually, I, I love that because then you can see the sunrise and it just is kind of my time and to have some tea or most oftentimes about a pot of coffee, but, um, and then, and then just, and then get to thinking and, and writing and uh, evolving myself in that way. And so I would say to folks who have young children or who are tied into a 40 plus hour work week, there are those times that you can find, you know, you just, it's a matter of prioritizing yourself, which, and, you know, with all due respect to my male host here of this program, I would say women in particular, we tend to kind of be the ones like kind of making sure everybody's going along, everybody's covered, you know, we've packed all of the gear for the sports camp that our kids are in uh, and, and got them squared away with their homework. And, but it's really important to take care of yourself first, whether that's your writing piece or whatever the storytelling platform that you're engaged in, um, to, to kind of put yourself first. And it, it's not an automatic for a, a lot of women and a lot of men as well, but uh, something that I found particularly helpful in terms of getting that leap to occur to becoming an author. Um, and one other thing I have to say is that, John, you actually ironically paid, played a big role in my becoming an author. Um, having a, a professional connection to you, I saw on LinkedIn the New Degree Press program and was so entranced by this idea that anyone could be an author. Uh, there's this hybrid publishing piece is something that not many people realize. Okay, Simon and Schuster, they're not exactly blowing up my phone saying, Elisa, we really want you to publish a book. And again, come back to that not independently wealthy thing. So publishing by myself kind of funding my own book was also not an option. So this, this uh, Creator Institute allows a lot of people who wouldn't otherwise be able to publish their books get into print. 
So I'm, so, I'm rambling. I'm sorry. I kind of, you, you got me excited to talk all about it. I'll, I'll be quiet now for a moment. I mean, the journey is such a big part of it for all of us. And uh, I really appreciate the fact, one, that you, you felt I inspired you. So thank you for saying that. And, and that you came up even, you know, with a small hybrid publisher, if you will, with an incredible book. I mean, Betrayal, the Ethel Rosenberg story. Uh, I really, I, I read this book. I read it in about five days, which is uh, a bit unusual for me. I tend to be a pretty slow reader. And I, I have to say this was a page turner for me. And I love this quote on the front page here on the cover, a riveting portrayal of an exceptionally important story Alan Creda, New York Times contributor, just a fantastic quote. There's a number on the back as well, but just a gorgeous cover. And I really appreciate you taking us through the journey and how that went for you. You know, and thinking about the journey, you know, maybe you could share with, with the audience a little bit about anything unexpected that came out of this, because I find oftentimes when we go through a creative journey, there's some benefits we hadn't even considered. Any, any of those for you? Indeed. Uh, some of the people that came to my journey, I was expecting them to get the book, perhaps read the book, say nice things about the book. What I didn't expect was the way they would take the content and move it to and elevate it and spread the message to a much wider area and larger audience. Uh, someone who I'm connected with through a mentoring program, we mentor grad students who are going through the same program that we went through 150 years ago. He said to me, you know, I, I have your book, I really like it. And I think it would be a great idea to do a book talk with fellow alumni, uh, not just I, I went to the same university undergrad and grad, why don't we reach out to the clubs associated with the with the, the larger school and also with Medill, the journalism program and, and see and, and I, I was so flattered and honored by that. And I'm very excited about that opportunity to share the message to more people. So I guess what has surprised me to answer your question, John, is that you don't always know what people are going to come to you. These are like gifts from the universe that you're not anticipating. You can never predict the ways that people are going to engage with your content. When you go on a creative journey, how it just really excites and inspires other people. And what a fantastic example. Here you are now to be a guest speaker at one of the most prestigious universities in the country. That is, that is really awesome. Uh, so let's get a little bit more into the book, you know, Ethel Rosen, uh, excuse me, Betrayal, the Ethel Rosenberg story. You know, why did you write this book? Why did you, you know, dig into the Cold War spy history? What was your inspiration there? It all started with a 60 minute story uh, that was uh, fronted by Cooper Anderson. And he interviewed the Mirapool brothers, and these are the two sons of Ethel Rosenberg and Julius Rosenberg. They were adopted by the Mirapools after the execution of the Rosenbergs and uh, basically raised the, the two of them. And it, he did a deep dive on the case and how it was only then that I began to understand the true injustice that occurred in the trial uh, and then the subsequent executions of, of these two people. And I guess I, a lot had, so I kind of, that sparked me to do a deep dive and read everything I could about the Rosenbergs. And there's been quite a, quite a bit. They were executed on June 19th, 1953. And so in the intervening decades, so much has been written. Almost all of it, about 95% of it is nonfiction, uh, documenting the case and talking about the spying what exactly occurred. And Ethel's story is not a part of that. She's only 
in, we only hear about Ethel as she relates to Julius, that, that she's Julius's wife. There was no evidence that she was actually a spy, zero. Um, <laughs> the only evidence that was presented by prosecutors in the case against Ethel specifically was testimony by her brother. Her family of origin brother, David Greenglass, testified against her. And in this 60-minute story that I viewed, they had video of an interview with him in which he admitted that he didn't remember if, in fact, Ethel was the person who typed the notes. That was kind of the thing. He said, oh, she, she had to have known about the spying because she typed the notes. Well, he said, it could have been my wife who, who was also involved in the case. So it just occurred to me, there is a real need for someone to tell this woman's story. And then I saw how it relates to modern day in terms of kind of how she was stymied and how that plays out in today's world with the Me Too movement, the relationship between the United States and the nationalistic fervor that was going on um, at that time, the McCarthyism and what it means to be a patriot, very much a part of the vernacular of what we're, what's going on in the world today in terms of what it means to be an American and just Russia. The, Russia was the country uh, that they were alleged to have helped. So, so just a lot of modern day tie-ins to that time. And most of all, I felt like it was a story of a woman that really needed to be told. I mean, it's almost 80 years ago. And yet so many of the lessons and stories are highly relevant to what we're still dealing with today. Uh, you know, there's been a lot of stories and, and I think I'm pretty sure I've seen her featured at the Spy Museum, if I recall correctly. When I saw her picture on the back of your book, I realized oh, I've seen that face somewhere. And I'm, I'm quite sure that's where I saw it was visiting the Spy Museum in the DC, <clears throat> excuse me, the DC area. So there's a lot of different beliefs about Ethel's guilt or innocence, and they've changed over time. Now, what would you say the current uh, thinking is on, on her story? So most people believe that she was wrongly convicted. Uh, that much we do know, because as I mentioned, the only evidence against her was perjured testimony. Uh, so we know that. In terms of what did she, I believe she had to have known Julius, on, I should take a step back and say that Julius, the case against him is, is pretty clear. He was a spy. Her um, husband, right? He provided industrial type information. The, the, big, the big piece of technology that he provided to the Soviets in the, the late 40s was the proximity fuse, which he actually assembled and then provided an, a, a physical proximity fuse, which he gave to his Russian handler, Alexander Feklazov. So I imagine husbands and wives, I imagine that Ethel may have been aware of what he was involved in. However, the transcripts ha that have been, the decrypts that have been released, the Russian handler that I mentioned, was wiring back cables back and forth to Moscow. And when Moscow would, would basically use code names, Julius had a code name, David Greenglass did, David Greenglass's wife did, Ethel Rosenberg, there was no code name for Ethel. That would lead many people to believe that she was not a spy. Um, so my, my belief is, was she complicit in terms of knowing what happened? Probably yes. Um, did she, she didn't have opportunity to get information or secrets to pass. So was she a spy? No. Were either of them atomic spies? I don't think so. 
Um, that was kind of what they they used to pursue the death penalty. I don't think they they didn't have them on the on that charge. Interesting. I mean, so many things going on there, and I love this Cold War history of of the story that you tell. And as I said, I read the book in four or five days. It was a real page turner for me. Uh, you know, speaking of, of of Ethel and the title of your book, you know, she was convicted of betraying her country. Right, that you, but you'd make the case that she's she was also portrayed. And how how would you how would you make that case, or how so? Well, definitely, I think it starts with her mother. So Tessie Greenglass, it's was pretty well known that she favored her sons. Ethel was her only daughter, but at that time, part of it was kind of the psyche of women raising daughters. At that time, the sons were kind of they were the ones that were you would invest in going to school or what's going to kind of be the future for the sons, the women were going to get married. And that was what they, what they were going to do. And so Ethel very much wanted to go to college. That was not an option for her. Uh, she was going to need to get a job, and which she did, and then turn over her wages to her mother, who was um, not, I, I would say that the betrayal of Ethel began with her mother. Her brother betrayed her in testifying against her. Um, and the quote, by the way, from him is, I don't sleep with my sister. <laughs> that was the reason why he seemed willing to kind of turn over and flip on his sister to the government. So she was betrayed by those two family of origin members. And then she was betrayed by the government, I think, by they, there was some prosecu- prosecutors, uh, some misconduct that occurred. Roy Cohn was just 24 years old and he was the assistant US attorney who prosecuted the case. And he also, another amazing quote, he is quoted many times, I've seen the video of him saying, I didn't need to see any evidence. I could tell Ethel was guilty by the look in her eyes. Okay, this is not what we're going for, for from the government. That is not a legal standard, okay? The look in their eyes, I mean, you know, no, this, this, not, this is not it. So I think the government betrayed her. And um, did Julius betray her? I don't know. I think they agreed. They kind of came to the conclusion that it would be better to go to their deaths uh, honorably rather than live feeling like they were living a lie. So those are the ways in which I think Ethel was betrayed. Wow. I mean, that's a heavy story. And I think what makes it a big part of the page turner, what made it a big part of the page turner for me. So I know you tell stories and I love the way you weave them all together with all the different characters. And it is historical fiction, right? That is the term. That is, uh, yeah. The story goes through the reporter, her sons, family members, and of course, Roy Kona that you just mentioned. You know, can you share an update with us on where they are now and you know what's happened in the years since? Well, I have had a really amazing interaction with Michael Mirapool, who is Ethel's oldest son, and she, he has been incredible. I forwarded him a copy of the book, and he was kind enough to respond positively. And uh, I, I kind of didn't, I didn't know what was he going to think because it's pretty clear that Julius is a spy, and, and he has admitted as much, but I didn't know how was he going to feel about this kind of fictionalizing his life. And he was, he was very positive. He is retired now. He and the younger brother, Robert, they have children and they're semi-retired both on both counts. They're both lawyers, I believe. Robert, the younger brother founded this incredible fund. It's the Rosenberg fund for children. 
And the whole mission of this organization is to raise and distribute money to help the children of jailed activists, people who are prisoners of conscience, who are uh, incarcerated. The money goes to pay for their children's travel to go visit their parents, the, their camps, their enrichment activities, um, music, art, these kinds of things. So in, in Robert Mirpool founded that in 1990. And in the interim, since as of about a month ago, they had raised more than $7 million and distributed to the children of, of others who are in their position were in, you know, it just is stunning to me how they continue to live Ethel's legacy, this idea of being a person of service. And um, so, yeah, so that that's their case. Ivy Mirapool, who is um, Ethel's granddaughter, she is a filmmaker. And I would suggest to anybody listening, you might want to, if you're interested in this case, uh, Ivy Mirapool has a film called Roy Cohn, Victim, Bully, Coward. Coward? <laughs> It's those three words. I'm not exactly sure of the order of them, but it takes a look at Roy Cohn, his life. And then the other one is Heir to an Execution, A Granddaughter Story. And that one came out a little bit, probably like 15 years ago. And in both cases, just really fascinating to, to think about um, and to see kind of where Ethel's, these ideas, where they are today and how they've lived, they continue to live through these grandchildren of Ethel and Julius Rosenberg. Such unbelievable stories. And I really appreciate the depth of the level of depth you went to in researching this. And it really showed through in the book. Uh, you know, I think one of the cases you make in the book is if the Rosenbergs have been sentenced to death and convicted uh, in a different day and age, maybe today, you know, might things have been different? And you know what dangers do you see in extreme nationalism that you see in, in today's world that maybe there's a parallel between the Cold War and now? I definitely feel this, that there's a worry when it kind of becomes the, the fervor and this nationalistic, when it kind of becomes, this is the way it has to be. Um, and, and one of the things that we hold so dear to us as Americans is the idea that we value a multitude of opinions so that being a patriot may mean believing in a different form of government, uh, that that's, that's okay, that that's part of it. And sometimes when the, the gov there's a governmental overreach type piece where we're prosecuting people based on their ideas, that's where it's a, a real danger and a real concern. And with the in the wake of 9-11, we're now 20 years, uh, coming up on 20 years anniversary. If you think back to that time, how there were, there was this feeling of patriotism, but about kind of a, we are different from them. And that is dangerous, I would argue. Whenever you're kind of pushing people out and saying, this is who we are not, um, and then prosecuting people on the basis of that, that's where the danger lies. And um, the all around the world, I think we're seeing people, citizens of Russia, Chinese citizens, everyone kind of getting more into their, their country of origin. And so there's a kind of a pull away from a global connectedness and into our country first. And so um, I think that it just, the biggest piece is just to be aware of it and to think about 
one of the reasons why we have the greatest country, in my opinion, um, is that we do have a, allow for that disparate views, you know, everywhere. It's it, right. We don't live in a black and white world, do we? Everything. There are so many different stories that go on behind the scenes. And many times we want to paint that picture. I appreciate you sharing that perspective and particularly on a global scale. Uh, you know, one of the key elements of this story is the death penalty. And, you know, some think its application is a miscarriage of justice. I'd be curious, you know, why you think that is. Well, um, in this, again, specific to this case, um, the, the way that the judge, Judge Kaufman, was able to sentence the Rosenbergs to death involved the fact that they were convicted of conspiracy to commit espionage at, when the United States was at war during World War II. But the thinking is that you're aiding an enemy in wartime. That's kind of the basis for why we should allow the death penalty to be applied, right? Okay, this is, this is not only did this person spy, we were at war and they provided the enemy with key information at this time. What the Rosenbergs were convicted of was it was, yes, it was during wartime, but they were convicted of providing information to Russia, who was an ally of ours during World War II. So it's kind of intellectually dishonest, in my opinion, that Kaufman said, you know, oh, well, we were at war, so therefore the, the death sentence applies here. Yes, we were, but it wasn't that they were providing Germany with information, um, which is also, I feel like, being poor Jewish from the Lower East Side of New York, you can kind of understand feeling motivated to help in the demise of Hitler. I mean, that, that kind of makes sense to me. So um, to me, that's, that's the biggest travesty of the death penalty. The fact that no other people were sentenced to death, including David Greenglass, who was the one who did admit to his part in all of it. Um, there's a woman that I write about in the book who was known as the doll woman, and she had a doll shop, a doll repair shop on Madison Avenue, and she provided information to the Japanese about U.S. warships during the same time. She admitted to her part in that espionage and was sentenced to, I think, seven to 10 years or something, and she served like five and, and was out. So nowhere in our history during the Cold War or really any other time is our U.S. citizens put to death on this basis. That's fascinating. And again, speaks to the extraordinary research you did on your book that, you know, all of these other things were happening in the world, and yet Ethel was the one that paid the ultimate price. And, and they're, you know, what you're arguing, I think, is you know, maybe uh, not necessarily uh, a strong, uh, not necessarily a strong case against her, uh, which leads us into really the last question around the book, and then we'll we'll wrap up here. You know, perceptions and treatment of women in the workplace have changed since the fifties, uh, right? But gender pay equity and true equality continue to remain elusive today. You know, thoughts on what we can do to help change that? Yes. So I believe one of the ways that we can reach true gender parity on the pay front is to for companies to be more transparent about what they're paying people. If you say that you're paying people equally, then it shouldn't be a problem to release that information. Um, I would argue that publicly held companies, this should be something that should be required of them, that people's, that the pay is, is this will give us an opportunity to see that women are in fact making the same amount as men. This is the true basis for, um, 
really equal treatment starts with compensation. And women uh, during the pandemic, uh, we've seen there's some disturbing trends in terms of women pulling out of the workplace. And um, I worry that we're heading in the wrong direction as far as that's concerned. So I think it's really important that companies kind of walk the walk in addition to talking about gender pay equity. They actually need to pay people you know, in an equitable way, and then they need to show that they are, you know, so I don't know, that's it's pr- probably pretty controversial statement. But um, that's, that's what the, I mean, in terms of what can really be done to change it is making it public, in my opinion. Well, I appreciate you sharing that and certainly an incredibly important topic. And uh, I love the fact that you used a creative work to try to bring this this message to the world. So thank you for doing that. So when you think about the book, it, it, are there any other key lessons or messages you'd like to share with the world uh, that, that you want people to take away from your book? I, I hope that it's ultimately uplifting that people say, okay, I can be true to myself. There are all these betrayals that occur. We are betrayed in small ways and large ways. We're not most of us in the situation that Ethel was in, but we all face these kind of daily little micro betrayals or then larger betrayals that occur. and what I would hope is that we walk away from this feeling that, you know what, we can not only survive this, but we can prevail and we can keep our belief systems intact and we can still be whole. And it doesn't have to change us in a negative way. Be true to yourself, live the life you want to live. I really, I really uh, I love that message. Uh, where can people go to learn more about you and your book? So I've set up a website. And, and when I say I, I mean my daughter. Um, <laughs> <laughs> she's the, the person who handles this stuff and knows all these crazy things about this internet thing. Um, so it's myholename.com, which is Alisa, just Lisa with an A in front, alisaparenti.com. Parent with an I. Parent with an I. <laughs> with an A, parent with an I.com. Yep. Alisa's book. Betrayal, the Ethel Rosenberg story, available now wherever you buy books online. Lisa, thanks for being on the show. I'm your host, John Saunders. Keep moving forward.